Hi everyone, and welcome to the June edition of the DistilleryTours.Scot podcast, giving you that wee bit of extra insight from Scotland's whisky distilleries. My name's Nikki Simpson, and in this episode, I spoke to Annette McKenzie, Visitor Centre Manager at the Glenmorangie Distillery in Tame. Annette's love of whisky is palpable, and as she tells us about the traditions of Glenmorangie brought down through generations of families working in the distillery, she really inspires us to experiment with different kinds of whisky. This episode was recorded in May 2020, when the world had been social distancing for around two months to stop the spread of COVID-19. If you'd like to find out more about the Glenmorangie Distillery, its tours and its whisky, check out distillerytours.scot and click on the Book Now button on the Glenmorangie listing. We hope you enjoy it. So hi everyone, Uh, welcome. I'm here today with Visitor Centre Manager Annette McKenzie from the Glenmorangie Distillery. Hi Annette. Hi, Nikki. How are you? I'm good, thanks. I'm good. How are you? Good. Perfect. Lovely day today. So, uh, strange times for us all at the moment. Um, how are you? How are you coping at the moment during lockdown? Gosh, um, probably like most people, it's this is into my tenth week, I think. Uh, finding our feet. Lots of Zoom calls. You can't be zoomed out some days, so. But we have fun fun calls as well. And we have a, a meeting with the whole company on a Monday, which is Tom, our CEO, has a chat to everybody and we got a chance to talk and ask questions. Then we have our usual comms meeting with everybody from Edinburgh to Isla to Edinburgh, and then we have a fun half hour Wednesday, Thursday and Friday, which we try to do something funny like a baby competition or cocktail making or so, yeah finding our feet of working at home it's quite nice sometimes though being able to dip in and out and work at six o'clock at night rather than 10 o'clock in the morning so I think there'll be a few people around that will be quite happy to continue like this but working in a visitor center that's not going to be possible for myself (laughs) so we'll have to get back to work at some point yeah I think um, you're right though I think anybody that's normally office based will you know be much keener to work from home I think after this but We'll see, you know, we never know how things will change, I guess. I think everybody's missing just the actual social contact with people face to face. Um, And I think that's probably come out of all our meetings that we all talk about. That's been the hardest, I think. Or occasionally you turn around and think, oh, I need that bit of information. And it's not there. You have to scrumble around a bit more for it. Whereas if you're in your own desk in your own office, you know, it's there right in front of you. So, yeah, there's there's good ways. There's good days and bad days. Mainly good days. So um, you told me that the Glenmorangie um, distillery has a lovely story behind it, especially the visitor centre. Can you tell us a little bit about how it came to be? Well, the visitor centre, if I go right back to the beginning, when I suppose when we just opened it, it was to be opened in 1994, late September. Um, and I was actually working somewhere different. And I saw the opportunity there. So I had my CV in my hand. And that's like 25 years ago. So, you know, the main post office with lovely brass plate around the the bit where you popped your envelope in. And I put it in and I didn't let go. I thought, I can't do this. You know, working down there, I don't know if I can do this, speak to all these visitors and um, just standing in front of somebody to talk in front of like, say, 10 or 15 people. But so I thought, I'll just take it back. I had cold feet. (laughs) And then I was like, okay. A year later, the opportunity came up again. They were looking for somebody to work in the visitor centre. And it was actually part-time then. So I was like, I'm going to do it. 
So as you see, 25 years later, 25 years later, I'm still there. So it was like, okay. So the visitor center changed. Um, it was a small building at the time. And that was actually the, what we used for the customs and excise. So the customs and excise um, were no longer on site. So we took over that building and then it was, um, there was another little cottage that we'll talk about maybe later on if we get the chance. And um, so we, we, we opened the visitor center with that little room. And then all I remember, it had a huge table. It had a huge lock box that all the, it was actually cemented to the floor and all with a massive padlock and all the paperwork for the goods in and out of the distillery actually went in there on a daily basis. So the other little cottage was converted to a store and some toilets and a small room area that we used to be able to show a little video, short video, a day in the life of Glamorangie. So if anybody is at the distillery, they can still see this famous box that we use. Um, it's still got its padlock, but we've got the key. And um, you know, we use it for competitions or for suggestions and things like that. So the in those days, the marketing around the distillery about Glamonji was based more around the 16 men of 10. So they, um, we were only producing about 2 million litres. So in late 1995, 96, there were so many visitors coming into the distillery that we were running out of space. So there was a gap between that two buildings. So we renovated the old still house, um, which actually was a huge area and it became a dumping ground for pumps and hoses and everything. Everything was hoarded in those days in case we needed it for future repairs. Um, it's possible that most distilleries have a room like this even to today. You know, it's like a kitchen drawer. I think most you houses in, in general. That, <laughs> yeah, you put it, you put at that, I'll put it in that drawer just in case and then one day five years down the line you think why have I kept this so we cleared everything out like that and once we it was cleared out we had a great space for the old display and the artifacts and a lovely area to rehouse the new film which then by then we had our port would finish our sherry would finish and our Madeira would finish so that area is still used today. And tell me about the 16 men of teen that you mentioned. Yeah, well, in those days, the 16 men of Tain well, was only 16 men. That actually included the two managers that were on site. Whereas now we've got a team, including the visitor centre, we've got a team of about 33. But even to today, it's still people are amazed that it's only made by technically, you know, 30 people. And it's, you know, it's still such a high, high um up there is number four, three, four in the world. So, you know, to be produced, our visitors are quite, when we mentioned that figures, you know, they're quite astounded by 30 men. But in those days, we were, we used to say we were number one in Scotland, number two in Great Britain and number three in the world. And they constantly went 16 men, 16 people actually produce this. So, um, yeah, it still has a lot of, it's big following. So. Yeah, they're always wanting to see where the men of Tain are. It's not always possible, <laughs> you know, one mashman, one stillman working at a time. So it's um, ducking and diving between the visitors. So, um, but they're still visible. They're still there working hard in the background. <laughs> so three of that men actually um, 
Brian, Dougie, and what was his name? James. Brian was a builder to trade and Dougie was a joiner and James was an electrician. So when we started to get more and more visitors and running out of space, we joined these two buildings together. Um, we took three other boys in to work in their, in their positions and that boys then um, built the visitor centre in 1999. And that's when it was a freezing cold winter too, but they did it. Brian, as I say, was a stonemason and there was cottages away down at the bottom underneath the railway bridge towards on the Dornoch Firth. And he dressed every single, he dug them out of the, the, it was just, um, what do you call it? It was uh, growth. It, was, it had gone under the, uh, the growth area of the grass and there was reeds and everything. So he dressed all these stone by hand and then brought them back up to the visitor centre. And that's what we did. We, we, he dug them out, the sandstone blocks, redressed every one of them so that the front of the visitor centre, when we joined the buildings together, was in keeping with the rest of the distillery. That was a huge task, but he did it. Every single one of them was was um, was dressed. Um, and then he gave me the chance. He said when we was ready to put the first one in place, he sort of came along and says, Annette, come along. I've got a job for you. And he let me lay the first, with the help of him, of course, he let me lay the first stone. So every time I come back up with people, I just have a quick look and say, that's oh, my Oh, that's a lovely story. <laughs> I really like so, it. Yeah, there's lots of stories behind it. So it's just on the bottom left-hand one, if anybody's around. Um, so the bottom left-hand one, I always think, yeah, that's mine. That's mine. And then Dougie, got your initials engraved on it. I was nearly wanting to etch them in, but he was like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> Only a builder can do this. You know, when they do the plinths over doors and things like that, they used to put their, their initials or a date or that. But no, he wouldn't let me. I don't think it would go down too well. I think they would be better to say, no, leave it nice. It's a nice, lovely dress stone. So, yeah. And then Dougie, he was a joiner. Um, and if the building, when you look at the building, it's got two bay windows. One is a very, very old building that was the customs and excise uh, bay window. And then he had to obviously mimic the other one on the other side of the door. And he always says to me, Annette, don't ever ask me to do that again. It was so intricate um, joinery work, but he did it and it's there. And James, well, he just did all the all the electrical works, but it was, as I say, one of the coldest winters. But it's something we should be proud of. You know, it's still the shop that we use today, still the bar area today. So, uh, yeah, it was built by the three men, three of the men of Dean in those days. So, and we opened it officially in two, the year two thousand. That's really cool. Yeah. But how wonderful to have. Um, but how wonderful. How, how wonderful to have team of people that actually work at the distillery also helping to make the building I mean that must be so rewarding for them to know that that's part of its heritage well yeah because Brian Brian and Dougie James is no longer worth it with us now he went back to being a sparky and uh, but James um, Dougie and Brian they're there now that two boys they will turn their hands I think a lot of builders and joiners are able to do other things anyway so when we changed a little bit inside Brian was able to to put the fireplace back in place and set up a new um tiled area around it they can do lots of different jobs so yeah they still say we still joke we still laugh and we still got the pictures to see how we joined it all together and it's like yeah they've all been there now Dougie's been over 30 years and Brian's 20 probably 25 years as well so 
they've you know, it's 20 years ago they built it, so we st- we're still using it. It's been changed a little couple of times inside just because marketing want to change the look of the building or we've added new windows on the roof and to give us more light. Um, but yeah, it's it was built by the men of Tain. So yeah, it, I'm sure it'll be still standing in another 20, 30, 40 years, whether it's still used as a visitor centre, but it's still there. And it's joined to an original built, two very, very old buildings. So, yeah, nice to look at. So you mentioned the cottage that's um, that's part of the grounds that is linked between the... Tell me about the cottage. Yeah, the cottage, the cottage we call Alice's cottage. Alice, um, she, well, that's a building that we first used when we decided we would go with adding and you know expanding the the building so there was a big gap in between that and the customs and excise building which was the the shop basically so that that used to have a an old building that was in the middle and it was knocked down and the boys at that time the boys the filling store was directly across from the shop but then that was being changed so there was a big gap there then so Alice's cottage and the customs and excise shop was to be joined together so Alice she was just Alice was just a lovely lady. She was so gentle, always had a smile. And she hated when we used to go into silent season in those days. Well, not when I was there, but previous to that, when um, there was a non-production time. And in those days, the site was shut for quite a few time, quite a long time. It was probably about 12, if not 15, 16 weeks when the boys would go off and do other things on the land. Because over the years, you know, we were doing our own malting, so they were involved in other things. So... Um, yeah, I don't think I ever heard her raise her voice ever. She had this cat. <laughs> I remember Alice, she had and this she, cat. And she lived in the cottage? Yeah, Alice lived in the cottage probably from around 90 years, actually, before she moved. Her and her, her father, George, um, George Ross, um, he worked at the distillery when he was 13. And he actually worked till he was 85. So he's got something like 72 years of service. That's like a wow factor. So Alice and her sister were born and brought up in the cottage. So Alice lived there for 90 years. Um, but then she moved into town when she got a little bit older, when she was about, I think, 92. <laughs> so she stopped working. She used to be the cleaner. And um, she used to set the fires in the morning at the distillery because we still had an open fire when I first went there. But no open fires now. You know, we're not allowed fires danger so um it's joked out no candles no fires at any distillery so yeah that's long past but yeah she used to do all that every day and even our little cleaner that used to be and still she was 90 as well actually it must be a good number for Glamorangie she used to set our fire she lived up on the up on the hill from Tain across from the distillery and um she sort of took over Alice's job uh, when Alice retired so yeah 90's a good age and I mean, um, I mean, ninety is a really long time to live, anyway. But to live in the same house and so on. I mean, I mean, there must have been so many, um, so many members of the team as well who would have been influenced by being around her. And you know, what was it like? What was what was her influence on the distillery? Do you think? I think her influence in those days, because there was, she was only really the only lady that was around. There was one other lady that used to to work in the office, Tersha. She, I think, was the granddaughter of one of the smart, the managers. Um, just, uh, yeah, she, 
she would know all the boys. She was very much up for a laugh as well. So she she knew them all. She would feed them and bake for them and chat to them over the fence when they were going back and forth. Because remember, in those days, Glamonji was much, much smaller. Um, and her garden jutted out into the part of the land where the barrels would roll down past the filling store to go to the with the tractor and trailer to take, or even the boys pushing the barrels round the corner to the warehouse. Because in those days, there wasn't that as many warehouses either. So, um, yeah, she just knew everybody and they all knew her. So, lovely, quiet lady, lovely lady. And what about your own father? Maybe you're saying that, or your own grandfather, was it? Yeah, when I, when I went to there, I joined back, as I said, in 1995. But, well, I was talking to my mum one day and she made a, passing comment and she goes oh by the way your grandfather granddad Murdo worked there with Alice's father George before he moved to the distillery before he moved away to another distillery but you know I just chuckled to myself I thought mum you've only taken a year to tell me this you know most of my family have worked in the distillery industry but not Glamorangy but my grandfather did so once she had told me that I did have a wee look back through the archive ledgers and found his name and wages and all these things so things like that are just fascinating to read but you know I did laugh at my mum's taking a year to tell me that my grandfather actually worked at the distillery so there's there's quite a lot of um families have have joined us over the years and there's one in particular just now Alan young Alan Duff um his father is a mashman he's been here for what 26 28 years um so young Alan joined us a couple of years ago and he's now also he works in the warehouse but he's also a trainee stillman so by the time we go back to work after this gap in time um he's probably passed because the distillery's actually back working um under very different conditions um so yeah there's been alan and then we had another oh, chap i mean that's really good news yeah we had dougie dougie murray um dougie's actually i don't know he must be what 30 years plus service and also his father was a stillman previously and um, he worked in the old still house before we moved into the one that we've got just now. So he was there before 1990. And when Glamonji doubled their stills to eight, um, Dougie's, Dougie's father moved into the new still house. And then Dougie's son joined us as well. Um, so he worked for a period during the summer summer months in the in the warehouse. So we had three generations working together at the distillery. There was actually another couple. There was Richard. Richard's a mashman. He's also got 30 years service. Um, and his father worked at the distillery. And then his son, Gavin, joined us. So Dougie's son and Richard's son, they worked together in the summer um, in the warehousing. And that was three generations of families all working at the distillery, which was, we did a lovely little um, a little spread on them in one of our ma internal company magazines. So um, Dougie had lost his father by this time, but, you know, we were able to tell the story about how, you know, they come, everybody comes to the distillery. And I'm sure there's a lot of distilleries out there that they come and they stay for a long time. I'm not sure why. Tradition. They like it. <laughs> It's just, um, you know, they, when you look back through the history, people stay at distilleries for a long time. 
I wonder if it's just kind of in the blood. Well, I think so. As I say, my grandfather worked there. My father worked at another distillery. My brother's done 40 years. So, yeah, uncles, aunties. I'm the only one out of my family, my mum and dad's family, that drink whiskey. As I say, even my brother doesn't drink whiskey, but he works at a distillery. So you don't have to drink whiskey. But the old tradition, it does help. So do you think that having so much passed on from generation to generation is, um, do you think that also includes traditions and superstitions? Probably, I would say yes, generation to generation. I would say, yeah, it's nice to see that um, you've got the same people passing down tradition. Because when we moved into, when we did our last upgrade a number of years, 12 years ago, Dr. Bill, as we call him, he's head of whiskey creation, based in Edinburgh, and he was a—he was also a previous manager. I'm sure everybody's heard about Dr. Bill. He was heading abroad one time, and he asked me for something. Um, by this time, he was already down in Edinburgh working, and he was heading abroad for, and he was looking for something in the archives. And I happened to find a paper clipping about Dougie's father, when we moved into the the one previously in 1990. So when I was reading this. Um, it had said that John had gone to the land about around our springs across from the distillery to forage for juniper berries and branches and greenery and foliage and things like that. So that was the first thing that they always used to boil up in the pots for the new pots, which was known for sweetening of the stills. Um, And this obviously triggered something and um, we all thought that this should definitely be done and continued. So when the stills were completed, young Dougie had the honour uh, to continue in the manner of tradition as is before, as his father. And he was asked how much juniper and for how long boiling. And the old boys would say, that's as much and for just as long, a wee bit twinkle in their eye. They wouldn't tell them how much. So Dougie was sort of guessing how much he was going to put in. So, so whether it's something, Nikki, whether it's superstition or just tradition, we're not going to take a chance and I'm sure it will continue in the future. So the coppersmiths. Yeah, that's a nice thing to continue. I think, yeah, the coppersmiths would say there's no science to it, but everybody was and probably is convinced that if they didn't do it, a different spirit would emerge from the cask in years to come. So it's definitely something that we we will still do whether we do this in five years or 10 years, or if we ever expand the distillery again, I'm sure the old time tradition will do it. We will still do that. And what about, um, I mean, as a long term employee yourself, you must have seen loads of whiskey pass through for sure. And loads of tours as well. How do you go about the process of actually designing a distillery tour? Sometimes it comes easy and sometimes it's not. Working with the team in Edinburgh, we create stories to capture the imagination of people. So when we first, well, when I first joined there, there was just one tour. Um, it was the original tour. It was sort of set out in stone. It was, um, we just showed everybody around the distillery. It took about 45 minutes to an hour, depending on questions and things like that. So, but before when we used to do that, we would say to people, has anybody been to a distillery before? And hardly anybody put their hand up. You know, it was just, 
it was just the odd person. But now if you ask them, just about everybody's been to some distillery somewhere. You know, there's over 120 odd malt distilleries in Scotland. So, and a lot of them have the visitor centers. So some, but most people know something about it. We still get the occasional people, um, but we do try and build up new tours, our heritage tours, which take maybe a two hours. We've got innovation tours that we were going to do this year, but obviously at the moment they're on hold. Um, but we're not scared of trying something new or, or we, we listen. Um, we listen to what people are asking us, even from previous years, whether we reinstate something or and if it doesn't work, then we're not scared to say, well, that didn't work. You know, we do late night openings um because people you know they like to be there at night time um and that takes on a different feel so and we've paired we've paired them with chocolate we've paired tours with um canapes we've um incorporated the old glimmer the cadble stone and we've gone and taken them to the springs so yeah there's there's lots of things that you know that we're able to do with the people but if they ask then that we try and we try and um, assist, but we we get the guides that have the tours. The guides we give them the information, we give them guidance, and then they have to build up their own tour because every tour is different. Every tour is different. You can't go out there and say something parrot fashion. Um, it's got to come from the person, and it's it, it shows because when people come back, you know you go out with maybe 10 strangers, but you'd normally come back with two, three, four, five people that are really, really interested in it and want more. And everybody wants a bit more now. It, the style of the tour has changed itself as well. Um, people are not afraid to ask questions. Whereas before it was like, can I ask you this? And it was quietly in the background when nobody else could hear. So I guess then that depends on, on who the guide is then, really, doesn't it? It's, it's all down to them and, and how they want to lead it. Yeah, because most of the guides that we have come for the summer and like four months, depending on their... It tends to be the ones from university that want to be there, but, I mean, it's not always the case. So, I mean, my daughter, she worked there for five summers um, way back. Um, and she said, Mum, I'm not doing a sixth one. I have to find a, another job, a proper job with my degree. So that's what she did. But, you know, one of the girls that came with us, she a, year, a few years ago, her father was one of the men of Tain. And, you know, she was really, really quiet. So we, I thought, she's got a great voice. We give her, we give her the tools. And she was one of the best, you know, clear speaking guides out that's been there in all these years. A few years ago, I, a couple of years ago, when we had our 175th anniversary, I totted up how many guides that has been working at the distillery. And there's probably been about 50 to 60 summer guides over that 20 odd years. So I always remember one of them saying to me, that he was so thankful that I gave her the job. Her sister was a guide as well, but she was totally different. And she, he said, you know, Annette, thank you for giving her the chance. And I'm like, she did the job. We just give her the tools. And, you know, she had grown in confidence. Um, to be, She was so shy, but then she was able to speak to people. And, and now as a job, you know, she speaks to different people every single day, all over the north of Scotland. Um, 
I'll not mention what she does in case she does happen to listen and she'll know who I'm talking about. But, um, <laughs> you know, she just just um, gave her confidence to go forward and to do what she's doing today as well. So it's great because it is daunting when you have to speak in front of about 20 people or 15 people and some of them don't have very much English, you know, so it's, it can be challenging. But, you know, after a couple of weeks, building core strengths information and then they come back and they just they used to say um can i have it can i just have a small tour and i'd be like no you want bigger tours they're like no 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 we want small tours give them two or three days and they're like no give me big tours let's take lots of people out you get more feedback you know and have a bit of fun with them so um we like to get asked questions we do like to get asked questions it's challenging us would you say that's your favorite part of the role then just nurturing those those teams of guides I think so. I think it's really nice to see because the first year they're quite quiet. The guides are quite quiet and I mean, amongst themselves, um, they're fine, but you know, they, they're learning and building, but it's like everything. You know, if you're only there for like 12, 14 weeks and then you come back and you've got a bit more confidence and then you're getting older, you're into your twenties if they're coming in when they're 18. Um, at the moment, they all tend to be local people. And we had had, we've had twins join us, brothers and sisters join us. We've had the men join us. They always used to say, oh, it's only a girl's job. And we're like, no. And um, we had one boy who joined us years ago and he used to wear his kilt. And he always used to get all the photographs. He used to get the biggest tips as well. <laughs> so everybody wanted to get a photo of him with him. There's a top tip for anyone. Yeah, with a kilt. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, um, yeah. So we've had a few boys over the time. You know, it's not just a girl's job. So, um, yeah, our men of 10 used to say, come on and give the boys a chance. And we're like, there's no boys asking for the job. But then eventually now, you know, out they come. So, yeah, we've had quite a number of the guys working with us, which is great because they're always good because they can help us move all the heavy boxes, <laughs> get our own back. When we spoke before, you talked a little bit about um, the Elanta whiskey and how you launched it in the Langham Hotel. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, Elanta, that was a beauty. That was a lovely whiskey. Um, over the years, over a 10 year period, we had, what's the word I'm looking for? Limited editions that we spread over the 10 years. So normally we would get our stocks um, for the visitor center. They normally come into me about the beginning of January, end of January, beginning of February. So the first one was Sonalta and Finalta, which was a smoky whiskey. And then we moved on to Artane. And then eventually the fourth one was Elanta. And Elanta uh, was a 19 year old virgin cask and it was bottled at 46%. Um, it was very limited as well. And then um, I went on holiday actually. I came back in October, I think it was October possibly the summer. And I was like, why this is flying out the door? Only to be told that it had become, it had been crowned Whiskey of the World back in 2013, over four and a half thousand whiskies. So um, that was like, wow factor. Wow. So we've still got, a, we've still got a few bottles here because we try and keep some back um, and just keep it sitting there. Cause we were rolling these out on a four year contract, well, four year, um, hoping that we had enough stock for the for four years in the shop. But the first couple, first three actually sold out within two years. So Elanta obviously um, became very limited as well. So it's a slightly higher priced whiskey, but it's one of the best. 
um, rounded, soft, beautiful whiskey. So when we launch a whiskey, we always like to have a story behind it. So this whiskey was launched in the Lang Motel in London. And the wood that was actually used for the barrels to mature this whiskey came from the famous Mark Twain forest in um, the US. So this is where Mark Twain, Mark Twain used to come over to um, the UK and he stayed at the Langham Hotel and that's where he found the love of his whiskey. So everything that we do, everything that we do, we always look to our bottles to have a story to tell. And although the spirit is key, um, it's our history and heritage in the bottle so that we can tell the journey of the spirit right from the start to the finish. So it's there's a few bottles left lurking about. I have one but to open it. I'm going to find a reason one day and I'll open my bottle as well. Beautiful whiskey. What what possible good reason could you have to open it now? I mean, are you uh, are are, uh, are your kids grown up now? Is that is there have they have you got grandchildren? Yeah, now my kids are grown up. I'll find a reason. If not, actually, do you know what I say to everybody every day, every day? Why keep it? You know, there's a lot of collectors out there, which is great. You know. Um, there's a huge collectors and we have a big big following of of people in this country and abroad if they can get their hands on the whiskey so um yeah but i still say to everybody open it i opened a bottle one day with uh, one of our other ones it was called takta and that was the chosen one and that's where we allowed the people to choose its name to choose its color to choose its finish and I remember at the time, I don't know, it was about 70, 70, 80 pound. And it was a Tuesday night and the kids were through with their partners and that. And um, I said, how about having a taste? My, my son's going, come on, mom, open it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, OK. And then he goes, I'm only joking. You're not opening it on a Tuesday night. It's 70 quid, you know, <laughs> 70, 80 pound. I'm like, I am. And I did. And I says, because I can. You know, it's my whiskey. I can open it. You know, it's like, why keep it for good? When you can, you know that, and he didn't say no. <laughs> he also went home with a little sample jar as well. So, um, yeah, don't keep things for good no. days. You know, the old day, the old keep it best yeah. for Sunday. Don't just to find a reason and open it, and if not, well, just open let it us anyway. Know if you're opening the Atlanta, and, and we'll try and be in the vicinity. <laughs> I'm sure I can send you something, Nikki. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. <laughs> Do you happen to know the tasting notes for the Atlanta off the top of your head? Elanta, Gallic for skilled and ingenious, that's what it means. Mark Twain, he was classed as the father of literature, travelled widely and was particularly fond of visiting the United Kingdom. So in 1873, he travelled on a speaking and writing tour. And while staying in the luxurious Langham Hotel in London, he discovered scotch. Um, he tried it in his favourite cocktail, a precursor of the old-fashioned. That's how it came about with there. So Twain's most popular works are set in amongst the native Missouri and home to the American White Oak. Um, so that was one of our private latest private editions in 2013. So Elanta actually means skilled and ingenious. So in 2013, it was actually crowned um, Whiskey of the World, um, over four and a half thousand whiskies. So the wood that they use there for making that is, it's exclusively virgin, uh, virgin oak casks. So the porous wood, and it's air dried for two years, which is something, you know, not every one of them have been done like that. So 
but you know over it, it the wood it, that allows the 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 spirit to extract a maximum of flavors so producing whiskey um it's soft it's smooth it's got layers of vanilla candied orange peel and it's interwoven with a sugar coated almonds almonds beautiful absolutely lovely whiskies what advice would you give to someone who would like to know more about whiskey in general um I would probably say visit us a distillery, read a little, but not too much at the beginning because it can become too confusing. I mean, if you've got the basics, you know, we've got barley, we've got water, we've got yeast. And, you know, to get that three ingredients to turn out like what we do in all our distilleries, whether it's an island or a highland. So try and start to experiment. Find a friend, I would say, and buy a couple of bottles. Um, there's a lot out there, but there'll always be one for you to drink. You'll, I remember saying you'll love them, you'll hate them, or you'll learn to drink them. Um, whether you like a peaty whiskey from Isla or a soft, smooth Highland, there's Lowland, there's Speyside, but there is just one out there that you'll always go back to time and time again. You know, it's like visiting an old friend. I always go, when I go on holiday, I always tend to be, if we're abroad, you tend to have beer or, or maybe a gin and tonic. But see, when I come home, my husband always says to me when we arrive back home, it's like, so what do you want, gin or whiskey? And my answer is always whiskey, <laughs> always, because you miss it. You know, it's it's just that I'm home now. I'll have a, I'll have a nice drive. Thanks very much. That's a lovely way to put it. I really like that, that uh, like visiting an old friend. I really like that. Yeah. It is because see when you drink to, um, when you go back to Glamorangy ten year old, um, ten year old everybody sees it as a core product, and it's just you know it's probably the we have to get that one right before we can do anything else with any of our other products. You know at the shop at the moment in the visitor centre we've probably got about sixteen different bottles, but we if we haven't got our 10 year old our original product right i always remember one of the marshmen saying to me you know the most important thing of this journey is the first 10 tons of barley that they put into that mash tun if they don't get that right <laughs> it's wrong all the way through the system so um and you know that stayed with me and that's not one of the old older men that used to stay uh, work there that was one that's still working there and i thought Do you know this he's he's right if you're not going to get that right in the mush tun that goes onto the washbacks to go onto the stills, to go onto the warehouse, to go on for 10 years, you don't get that first part right. So our core range, although 10 year old is our is one of our main core products, you know, that's where we start everything from and then expand it or finish it or extra mature it or, you know, or extend it to to go on to be 30 year old whiskey or 15 year old whiskey or 20 year old whiskey. So, you know, in the past, we've had a couple of 30 year olds or Malaga finishes or, you know, different finishing. But 10 year old is where our flavours come from. You know, the casks that we use are only used twice, the first fill and second fill. 60% of the flavours for Glamorangie is in the cask. So that's why we're meticulous in cask um, selection. So when it goes forward, that is what we use for our 10 year old is so many first fill and so many second fill. And that's where our um, flavors are coming there. So there's over well over a hundred and odd um, flavors that you can pick out. 
I'm learning over the years before, you know, you get your vanillas and your fruity flavours and your esters and your citrusy flavours. But, you know, when you dive deep into that um, whiskey wheel that we've all got, you know, you can see how they change from Isla whiskey to Speyside to, Low, to Lowland and to the Highland whiskey. So um, everybody's got a favourite. But it's nice to try different ones. You know, people always think that we just stick to drinking Glamorangy. We would never do that. You know, it's like it's having variation on everything. You don't know how good it is until you try something. And then you think, oh, no, you know, I like that better or I like that better. Or what have I had before to eat? Or when are you when are you drinking? Maybe you want a, a Nyla malt or a West Coast malt when after a nice meal. Maybe you treat it differently. You know, you might not want something to try something at 10 o'clock in the morning. Whereas Glamorangi original, you know, at 10, it's quite easy to drink, actually. Or so a lot of our visitors seem to think. So um, it's much easier. It's much easier to drink a Glamorangi 10 year old at 10 at 10 in the morning than an Ardbeg at 10 in the morning. So, you know, <laughs> well, maybe that's for us. Maybe Ardbegians um, think um, they, they love their whiskey at 10 in the morning as well. That's a benchmark, isn't it there? Can you drink it at 10 in the morning? <laughs> yeah, because we've only got Glamorangie 10 years. Well, we've got Glamorangie and we've got Ardbeg Distillery to have to stand and watch somebody to say, right, this is barley water yeast and put a 10-year-old Glamorangie in their left hand and put a Ardbeg 10-year-old in their right hand. You know, it's fascinating to see. They're, they're like, how can that be made the same way? Not identically, but, you know, the same three ingredients. And then to see it, how it changes, to watch their face when they they've never, they don't know what's in the glass and they drink Glamorangie and then they put the Ardbeg. They're like, oh my goodness. It's so funny to see, but it's like, it's fascinating how, you know, there's not a day goes past that you, even after all these years, I still ask that question, how, what, why, when, you know, um, Dr. Bill, when I worked in the office with him for two years before I moved back down to the visitor centre, he used to say, Annette, you've always got a question. I'm like, yeah, I'm learning I'm like a child. You know, if you don't know, you've got to ask. Um, so, yeah. You just just keep delving into what you what you like. Initially, you, your senses will tell you whether you like it. And that's why I see sometimes you go love it, hate it, but you can learn to you can learn to like it. So it's like anything, isn't it? The more you try, the more you can get used to something. But you know that you've always got a favourite to go back to. Yeah, and I think that some people say that they don't like whiskey, but then this, with so many different kinds, I mean, it's it's a very sweeping statement. It's like saying you don't like vegetables. You know, I mean, there's so many. It is a very, uh, we used to do, or we still do actually, um, we still do whiskey weekends. And this lady followed me around for an hour while I talked. And she's like, no, I don't like whiskey. I don't like whiskey. I don't like whiskey. So when we came back to the tasting, we had a different one. We had a blend and then we had a 10 year old. Then we had um, uh, one of our extra mature range. I think it was a port, a Quinta Rubin. Well, at that time it was would have been a port we'd finish. And then we had a Finalta, which was the second in that limited edition that I was talking about. And it was a slightly smoky uh, uh, PT whiskey. And she's like, I love it. Instantly, she went, I love it. And I still remember that day. That must be like 15 years ago. Must be about 15 years ago. So um, she said instantly, she looked at me and she went, I love this. So you do. Well, there you go. Love it. Hate it. Learn to drink it. So there's a, there is a whiskey out there for everybody that you'll always go back to. That's quite yeah. inspiring to hear that. Thanks, Annette. I like that. 
Well, thanks so much for coming to speak to us today. And um, yeah, I hope that everything's okay during lockdown and that, um, oh, it's, I'm pleased to hear that the distillery is up and running again. Yeah, and it'd be nice just to get back to see you see all our people that, um, that had previously booked and from abroad and from the UK. But we'll see. Things might change soon. And um, I'm sure we'll find a way of working around it. And there'll be a chance that we could all, at least maybe we'll have a Christmas party out of it and we could all have a dram together. So, slounge. Cheers, Nikki. If you enjoyed hearing about the Glenmorangia distillery and would like to try a bottle of Atlanta for yourself, the best place to buy it is in the visitor centre itself. Keep an eye on their website for updates on when they plan to reopen, but if you just can't wait, they're now offering telesales through the visitor centre. Phone 01862 892 477 to buy a bottle of Atlanta direct. Distillerytours.scot has every whisky distillery visitor centre in one place. If you'd like to hear more from us, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, or sign up for our Distillery and Whiskey News monthly email to hear the podcast first at distillerytours.scot forward slash sign up. In our next episode in July, we'll be speaking to John Fordyce, owner of the Borders Distillery in Hoyk. We look forward to seeing you then.